HBR presents. Everyone loves a villain, or so they say in Hollywood. And since the earliest days of film, writers and directors have found ready-made foils on Wall Street. Exhibit A, Gordon Gekko, the character played by Michael Douglas in Oliver Stone's 1987 classic, Wall Street. Gekko, who's even named after a lizard, is the soulless corporate raider who became the poster image of excess and greed that Wall Street has never really been able to shake. A stereotype for sure, but one that exists for a reason. Because whether it's life imitating art or the other way around, business, writ large, has all too often lived down to the villainous image. So is it possible to flip this script? Will there ever be a time when business plays the hero? Today we'll speak with professors Rebecca Henderson and George Seraphim on their case entitled, Should a Pension Fund Try to Change the World? Inside GPIF's Embrace of ESG. I'm your host, Brian Kenny, and you're listening to Cold Call, recorded live in Clarman Hall Studio at Harvard Business School. So we are all sitting there in the classroom. Professor walks in. And And they look up and you know it's coming. Oh, the dreaded cold call. Rebecca Henderson's work explores how organizations respond to large-scale technological shifts, most recently in regard to energy and the environment. She also created the course Reimagining Capitalism in the MBA program, which she co-teaches with our other guest, George Seraphim, whose research focuses on measuring, driving, and communicating corporate performance and social impact. Welcome, both of you. Hi, Brian. It's a pleasure to be on the program. Thank you very much, Brian, for having us. And Rebecca, this is your second time around on Cold Call. This is the first time we've been able to get George on here, so this is going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. It's always great to tag team. Rebecca, can you do me a favor? Set up the case for us. Who's the protagonist and what's on their mind? Sure. The protagonist is Hiro Mizuno. He is the chief investment officer of the GPIF, which is the Government Pension Investment Fund of Japan. It controls $1.6 trillion in assets. Wow. That's large enough that the fund owns about 10% of the Japanese stock market and 1% of the world's stock market. It's one of the largest pools of capital in the world. And the case opens with Hiro settling back into his airplane seat as he watches San Francisco disappear underneath him. And he's thinking to himself, am I doing the right thing? I'm pushing all the people who manage this money to think really seriously about environmental, social, and governance issues, about ESG issues. And is that a good idea? Is that what I should be doing? He's pretty sure it's what he should be doing. What he's really wondering is if it's enough to change the world. But the case is also about, is that the right thing to do? If he's managing all this money, shouldn't he be focused on making money? Why is he worrying about the environment and social issues and governance issues? And that's really what the case is about. Yeah, and those are some radical ideas that we're going to get into as we discuss the case further. What prompted you to write this case? How did you hear about GPIF and what they were doing? Um, I actually heard about it from George. (laughs) (laughs) This was George's idea, but I was the one that got on the airplane and flew to Japan. Absolutely. George's research for a long time has looked at whether and how the financial sector might be able to play a major role in uh, making the economy more sustainable and more just. And he got really deeply interested in a group of investors that we call universal investors. These are people who have so much money, either because they have so much money 
or because they're invested in what are called passive funds, where you can't move where your money is invested. You just have to hold, say, the Fortune 500. He got really interested in whether these investors could really change the world because for them, and this is the key issue at the heart of the case, if you have to hold every equity on the planet, you can't diversify away from risks to the whole economy. And so for Hero, the risk of climate change is not some abstract thing that might happen to some other firm. He believes that the whole economy is at risk and that Japanese economy is at risk from these issues. The sort of central question, the broader research question, is whether these very large asset owners could in fact be a very powerful force for good in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. George, let me ask you then, uh, since you were the one that brought GPIF to Rebecca, where does GPIF sit in the landscape of not just in the Japanese economy, but sort of in the global economy where it relates to pension funds? This is a great question, Brian. And let's uh, put it a little bit in perspective in terms of how we understand the whole capital market, right? So you can think about traditional investing. And in traditional investing, we tend to think about, do you buy PepsiCo? Do you buy Coke? Mm -hmm. And you're thinking about this whole competitive landscape, right? And also, we tend to think about it in terms of fairly short-term horizons. You buy them and you maybe buy them for months or for a year or something like that, and then you turn over your portfolio. When you're thinking about an institutions like GPIF or many of those large pension funds that Rebecca mentioned as universal owners, they are at the extreme of those two scales in terms of exposure widely to the industry or to the market or exposure to very long-term horizons when it comes to ownership. And when you have institutions like GPIF, that have very long-term horizons and they have very broadly diversified ownership, many of the things that traditionally are public goods problems for them and you have free rider problems, they don't exist for you anymore mm -hmm. because effectively you're interested in the marketplace. So there is almost in this horizontal axe of time horizon and on the vertical axe of uh, common ownership of competitors within industries, there is a set of investors that are at the extreme end of that. Yeah. GPIF is one of them. And then you have other investors that are right there. You can start thinking about other large pension funds, but also very large institutional investors, especially index managers like BlackRock, like Vanguard, and many of those other institutions that tend to exhibit those two characteristics. So I tend to lump all of those types of investors together and really call them stewards of the commons. Mm -hmm. Because for them, actually, stewardship of the commons is compatible with stewardship of client assets. You really care about the quality of the market for those types of institutions. And this ties a lot to your work in ESG. And I'm going to ask you to explain what that means and also just the concept of integrated reporting because that becomes an important aspect of the case as well. If you could describe those two things. Absolutely. So ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance issues. You can think about it in the environmental bucket, about climate change, about waste, about water issues, and so forth. In the social bucket, we tend to have issues around employees, employee safety, employee satisfaction, engagement, but also issues of employee diversity. And of course, customer-related issues in terms of product safety, access to products, to affordable products, and so forth. On the governance side, we have issues of diversity at the board, anti-corruption issues, and some of those governance-related aspects to it. Mm -hmm. And then the question that we have been asking for a long time is the extent to which 
those issues tend to be financially material or issues that are just pure public goods. And I think the answer that we're getting there is that it depends. Yeah. And it really depends on the industry that you're operating in. And now we have started to develop this understanding of what makes some of those issues material within industries and as a result, investor relevance. Something that GPAF should pay attention to and should try to drive corporate performance towards that. Yeah. So integrated reporting, let me start by saying that actually what is more important is integrated thinking. Integrated reporting is a reflection of what is happening inside the firm in terms of integrated thinking. And what is integrated thinking? Is actually the management of not only your financial capital, but really your social capital, your natural capital, and your human capital. And through that management, then it's about communicating how you're co-managing all these forms of capital and being able to show, importantly, the relationship. And that's what integrated reporting is supposed to be doing, reflecting the integrated thinking inside the firm. It's really interesting. Over the last 10 years, we have seen a tremendous development in terms of integrated reporting, now with thousands of large organizations releasing some type of self-labeled integrated report. But of course, there is a wide variation when it comes to the quality of those reports. Uh, yeah, I'll bet there is. And everybody's accustomed to seeing annual reports. That's been a common practice. But that focuses almost exclusively on the financial aspects of things. But what you're describing is fundamentally different than that. It is fundamentally different. It's something that has robust metrics. It has accountability mechanism. It has targets. It has a forward-looking perspective. And it really concentrates on what is material for the business mm-hmm. and how actually driving performance towards some of those ESG metrics ends up driving performance for the business itself in terms of return on capital, in terms of growth, in terms of cost of capital, and some of those things. And this becomes really important in the context of what GPIF is trying to do. So we'll talk more about that as well. Rebecca, can you just describe Japan's public pension system? It's a big, complex thing. And I was actually surprised because the case has a lot of detail about both GPIF and the other players that are in it, but also about some of the concerns that seem to exist out there and the criticisms of, of their approach. I mean, the reason we go into a little bit of detail about the nature of the pension plan is we're hoping actual pension plans will use this case. Yeah. And so if you're working for a pension fund, you want you want to know what's going on. In brief, there's about $3 trillion worth of pension fund assets in Japan, and GPIF uh, manages about half of them. Everyone in Japan has a mandatory public pension whether they're an employee in private business or whether they're a private individual. And so GPIF manages two of those large funds, which is about half of the total pension fund. There is concern in Japan that there aren't sufficient assets in the fund to cover payments. And so the fund is under some pressure to demonstrate that what it's doing is in the long-term interest of pensioners and will generate uh, significant financial returns. As we get into the case, it goes back in in some detail over the evolution of GPIF and their strategy. Can you describe, George, what the strategy was before the new mandate? And then we'll get into the new mandate. The first thing to understand is that GPIF is really a giant, actually, organization when it comes to assets. But it's actually a pretty small organization when it comes to number of people. And that introduces a certain number of complexities. For example, you cannot really manage with the organization that you have right now the assets internally. So as a result, you choose external managers. And then the choice of those external managers becomes really, really important. 
who you choose and being able to choose wisely. So traditionally, what has been happening with GPIF is that most of the assets were allocated in bonds and fixed income. And uh, for a long time, I think that uh, led to some underperformance in relative terms for the fund and not to the types of return expectations that you would need in order to cover future obligations that Rebecca mentioned before. So as a result, there was a reevaluation of that investment practice. And one of the recommendations was actually to move more towards equities, mm-hmm. also diversifying the portfolio outside of Japan, so increasing foreign exposure. And of course, to do that, that goes to my first point that you need to have actually the expertise to choose the right asset managers. Part of that was also an embrace of ESG investing as a practice and as a tool to culturally change GPIF and become more open-minded towards new opportunities in order to drive performance for the pension fund forward. There was an interesting anecdote in the case about what may have prompted Mizuno to start thinking about ESG more seriously. Can you, you recall that? It's a really interesting uh, conversation with then Secretary General Kofi Annan over dinner. And at some point, Kofi Annan asked Hiro why people in Japan don't care about ESG. (laughs) And Hiro actually asked, what is ESG? (laughs) Because there are so many acronyms. And uh, once he understood that, he said, it's not clear to me that actually people don't care. I think people care about those issues. But then he went back to Japan and Hiro had a career in London before that, and he went back to Japan, he he actually realized that indeed the Japanese asset managers, but also the business community was not advanced when it comes to ESG issues. So you didn't have the supply of information, so very few companies were actually internally managing ESG issues and also reporting and communicating information on ESG issues. And at the same time, most asset managers were not taking into account those types of issues. Yeah, yeah. Rebecca, just from your work uh, looking at firms across the spectrum. How radical was this idea that Hero was proposing, this notion of let's start to think about these three integrated subjects together in a different way? It's interesting. The radical part was thinking about all three. Many Japanese asset managers and investors were worried about governance. Historically, Japanese firms have not been very receptive to investor input for reasons we can talk about. And that There's a lot of evidence that that's negatively affected their performance. So focusing on governance, focusing on G, that wasn't radical at all. Mm -hmm. It was the idea that you should focus on E and S as well, that everyone was like, whoa, why are you doing that? I mean, that was very countercultural. This episode of Cold Call is brought to you by Indeed. Right now, small businesses have to be more efficient than ever. And that means every hire is critical. Indeed is here to help. Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost the visibility of your job post at Indeed.com slash cold call. That's Indeed.com slash cold call. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. It's interesting in the Japanese culture, the relationship with the environment has always been a really important part dating back thousands of years. Well, part of what was going on is most Japanese experience themselves as being very good environmentalists. I mean, the streets are clean. People aren't, you know, discharging huge amounts of toxic waste. But it turns out 
that on uh, fossil fuels, for example, Japan is really a laggard among the community of developed nations, Mm. partly because of the Fukushima disaster. They took nuclear power from about 10% of total power in Japan down to 1%. Mm -hmm. Japan is like 92% fossil fuel powered, which is really an outlier. But the Japanese don't perceive that. They don't think of themselves as having an environmental problem. And on the social issues, the issue that, that Hiro focuses most on is that of inclusion of women in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And Japan as a nation is one of the least advanced in terms of gender equity in the world. It ranks 105th out of 136 countries uh, by one measure and 114 out of 144 by another measure. Wow. Does this tie back again to Japanese culture? Is there a tradition here that has made it harder for women to have equity in the workplace? It's a complicated issue, but there are two major factors going on. One is that women have historically not played senior roles in government or in business. Yeah. The other is that women have historically had major responsibility for childcare, and men have worked extremely long hours. So it's still a business culture in which one of the signs of success is working punishingly long hours in every sector. And the women are supposed to be home taking care of the kids. And, you know, as someone who's been a, a single mom myself, I mean, the idea that you do your full-time job and then you come home and you do all the childcare, mm-hmm. this is really, really hard. And then the tax code reinforces the idea that women should fundamentally be, be staying home. So women who have excellent educational attainments, a lot of them go to university, when they come out and join business, they're funneled into a second-tier track. So there are two tracks, the managerial and the clerical, Mm -hmm. and women are overwhelmingly funneled into the clerical. So when you visit Tokyo, and I was was really surprised by this, Tokyo is the most beautiful modern city. You go into huge skyscrapers of concrete and glass with glorious views, and you come to the office, and a man stands up to greet you, and he's surrounded by a cloud of beautifully dressed, clearly very intelligent and on-the-ball women who are, you know, serving tea. Yeah. Um, and what's that? <laughs> seems very arcane, doesn't it? Seems it seems incredibly yeah. arcane by Western standards. And so one of the things that's going on here is the uh, Abe administration looking at the demographic crisis that Japan is, is facing because their birth rate is dropping faster than almost anywhere else in the world. And they're not open to immigration. So one solution to the demographic crisis is to bring in many more women into the workplace. And so that's why the S in ESG. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a, a major issue, but very controversial. So, how, how, George, I'm going to kick this one to you. How does Mizuno and his team impact this? Or is, is it the companies that they look to invest in? Is it the asset managers that they're working with? Sort of, what's their approach to this? So you're asking the question of what are the tools of influence? Really? Yeah. And there are multiple ones. One of them, for example, is index construction and constructing new indices. And why that might be particularly useful under certain cases is because actually you are isolating companies that end up not being included in those indices. So, for example, they constructed one index that is around women, Mm -hmm. specifically on the issue of diversity that Rebecca mentioned. And in that index, what happens is that companies that don't have practices for inclusion in the workforce of uh, women and diversity, they don't get included in the stock market index. I see. And that has really driven change inside some companies. It's complicated why. Some people might argue that this is because they are ashamed 
not to be included in the index. Some other people might argue is bad because if enough investors want the index and they don't invest in those companies, that could increase cost of capital for firms eventually mm-hmm. and so forth. So there are multiple mechanisms. It's not clear which one is operating. But one of the things that we found in the case, speaking to some of the companies, was that it was clear that this was putting pressure and was incentivizing companies to start changing practices and take that into account. Another component was actually pushing asset managers to actively engage with the companies that they are investing in. So not avoiding them, but investing in the ones that they want to drive change and then engaging with the companies to drive change on some of those issues. And that's different than they had been in the past. They had not and engaged. that is different. Yeah. And that is different. And I think that is actually different for many asset managers. And really where it gets really, really interesting for the case is how do you consider engagement from a passive manager's perspective? So you can have actually active managers doing research and actively choosing stocks and so forth. And they understand the companies because they're in the active management space. But how do you incentivize really passive managers that are constructing indices to engage with companies? Because they're not doing research. They don't understand deeply any one company. And also they have very, very low fees. So to give you a sense, Brian, an active manager could be getting, for example, 80 basis points or 1% as an expense ratio on the management fee for that fund, but and the passive manager could be getting 10 basis points mm-hmm. or five basis points. So what is really the business model? How do you compensate people for engaging with yeah. companies? So what do they do about it? How do they address that? Because that sounds like a huge issue. It is a huge issue, and that's where it gets really animated in the classroom <laughs> as well. I can tell you that, because uh, then uh, we ask students, okay, what is the business model? So design a contract for me. So what happens is that Hero really pressured asset managers and especially passive asset managers to come up with a contract, come up with a solution to that. And there was a lot of pushback from the asset managers saying, Hero, you're destroying our business model. We don't understand why you're doing that. We don't understand how to do this. And And I think Hero rightly responded saying, I'm the customer. You need to come up with a (laughs) a business model and the contract. And uh, by the end of the case, what happened is that three different asset managers came back with uh, three different models of engagement and as a result, tying fees to the outcomes of those engagements or the activities of those engagements. And this is a really interesting decision point for the case as well, which is how are you thinking about designing that contract? For example, are you thinking that this contract needs to be designed around the inputs or around the outcomes? So the more we hear about this, Rebecca, the more it sounds, this sounds like an incredibly complicated thing that the GPIF is trying to make happen. It sounds like a movement more than just like, hey, we're going to try a new approach here. I mean, are they really trying to move the whole market with them? Is that what Hero's goal is? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He's trying to move all the other big asset owners to focus on these these same set of issues. I mean, this is one of the reasons I love this case, because sometimes when people talk about corporate social responsibility or shared value, it sounds like it's really easy. And yeah, you just make money and you change the world at the same time. And what I love about this case is we have a protagonist who's absolutely trying to change the world. I mean, he's on planes all the time. He's talking and he carries enormous weight because he's managing $1.6 trillion. Yeah. He's got leverage. You know, and he, and he says, like, everyone in the world returns my phone calls. <laughs> you know? um, 
And so he's really trying to demonstrate a new way of thinking about investment. And he's hoping that that will take fire across other asset owners who have similar characteristics. This is a question for either of you. How does this tie back into the course that you're teaching, reimagining capitalism and some of the ideas? Is this kind of the central idea behind some of the course? It's one of the ideas I would consider it. So the way to understand the course is really trying to go through different units of analysis for the students. So one of them is at the individual firm level. What can you do as a firm? And there we do a lot of the examples of doing well by doing good. Mm Right? So we do business model innovations, practice innovations, changing actually your processes, your business model, your products, and really creating a good social outcomes and at the same time making more money. But what we always say is that this is not enough. Why? Because fundamentally every business will engage up to the point that it makes economic sense from an ROI perspective. So you might find an electric utility company that will go 5% renewable, yeah. but not 50% renewable, right? right? And also you might find cases where they engage only on the issues that make sense from an ROI perspective. So then w- when we ask the question about what can really move the system, then you need to start getting around some of those free rider problems and around some of those tragedy of the common problems. So we are trying trying to elevate the unit of analysis much more to the market level. And then we find some of those institutions that really uh, their interests are aligned with the interests of the market overall rather than any individual company. And I think that exemplifies, this case exemplifies that kind of point that in society we really have institutions that take into account all these different externalities and they internalize them. As we do, I think, and I I go out on a limb a little bit and say that as we do, all of us eventually as pensioners, for example, right? We invest our money and we're interested in 60-year outcomes, 50-year outcomes, 40-year outcomes. As a result, many of those issues of inclusiveness, of climate change, of proper governance and robust market institutions are things that define the long-term economic outcomes for any given country and as a result, our own prosperity. So short-termism is a problem that we have to overcome to have these kinds of ideas really take root. I think there are two problems. One is time horizon and the other is collective action. Mm. Because while I might really care about whether climate change will change the planet, if I stop flying and stop eating meat, but everybody else keeps right away using fossil fuels and doesn't care, my actions won't make any difference. So I have to be both focused on the long term and find a way that all of us move together. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about the GPIF case is Hero has both a very long time horizon. He's on the hook for pensions for the next 100 years. And he has a way to bring everyone together because he owns so much of the market that it's, you know, if he acts, it really makes a difference and it increases the odds that everybody else will act. Yeah. Impacting change at the market level Mm -hmm. is really the key. At the institutional level, it can seem like a kind of intimidating word. But if you think one of the problems we have in capitalism as a whole is we've really focused on me right now. And now we have serious long-term us problems. We're not thinking about the collective goods. How have humans historically solved that kind of problem? Well, through families. You know, we spend a lot of time teaching our two-year-old that, no, you have to look at the long-term. And, and it's not just about you. <laughs> and, uh, and local communities and faith traditions and governments. And all those institutions are under a lot of stress right now. 
And so one of the big questions in the course is, is can business step in and sort of help support or grow new institutions that might help us focus on the long term and on the collective good? So back to GPIF specifically, they've had some time to try this out. How's it working? So far, so good. I think Hero would be the first to say that this is a work in process. But certainly, we see a very significant percentage of Japanese firms changing their behavior. As George suggested, being left out of the index is sort of makes everybody a little nervous. So a lot of firms are changing their behavior. Asset managers have gone from, you've got to be kidding, Mm -hmm. to, okay, you're really serious. And so a number of them are starting to develop capabilities to engage with firms. That's very encouraging. And I think just the fact that that GPIF is making this much progress is having effects across the world. I hear about what GPIF is doing when I talk to other major asset managers all over the world. George, I'll give you the final word on this. You've taught this case in class before. You mentioned some of the turning points in the class. Any big surprises that you've heard from people? Any any students from Japan who had a you know a unique perspective to share? What is really interesting about the case, Brian, is that most of the students are not used to thinking about the institutional level. They're very good about thinking about individual firms and developing strategies about individual firms. But developing an understanding of how you move a system and developing systems thinking is something that for many of them, actually, it's a new perspective. So, for example, how you change incentives on the asset managers becomes really important. Mm-hmm. How do you construct those indices becomes really important. How you engage with companies and the types of dialogues that you have becomes really important in order to get the outcomes that you want and not perverse incentives in the system and unintended outcomes. And then how do you scale up some of those efforts? How do you bring other pension funds and other asset owners to the table? That becomes a really interesting exercise in class. Could I add one one thought to this? Which is I asked the students in my class which case and which protagonist they like best. Mm -hmm. And uh, Hero did the immense honor of flying to Boston to be in our classroom when we taught this case. And he was hands down the favorite protagonist of the students. And I asked them why. And they said two things. They said, well, he's amazing. (laughs) And the second thing they said is, and this might really work. Yeah. Could be a harbinger of something new. Thank you both so much. It was a pleasure. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. If you enjoy Cold Call, you should check out our other podcasts from Harvard Business School, including After Hours, Skydeck, and Managing the Future of Work. Find them on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks again for joining us. I'm your host, Brian Kenny, and you've been listening to Cold Call, an official podcast of Harvard Business School brought to you by the HBR Presents Network. <laughs>